welcome to the Empowering Agency Workers, a podcast for all temporary workers. If you're unsure of your rights, unsure how to find work, or just plain unsure, we're here to help. It's all too easy to be exploited, so your expert host, Julia Kermode, will empower you to succeed. Hi, welcome to today's podcast episode. This is the second in a two-part special, which is an in-depth look at the umbrella sector. Um, And the reason why we're looking in-depth at at the umbrella sector is that there has been um, a very comprehensive independent report about the sector published by the Low Incomes Tax Reform Group. Um, And I was very lucky to spend some time talking to the lead author of the report, Meredith McCammond. Now, we didn't intend to produce two episodes in relation to this report, but actually we spent so much time on the subject that it seemed sensible to cut the interview into two and um, and make it a two-parter. So we now rejoin the interview just as we're about to talk about the job retention scheme and the impact of that on the umbrella sector. Okay, so yeah, you just mentioned the job retention scheme. What happened in a, around that then um last year yes let's where do you start with the job retention scheme i mean i know yeah i have to say that in my whole nearly 20 years of being a tax advisor and doing tax i don't think i've ever had a year quite like (laughs) the last year in terms of trying to understand the job retention scheme and help workers understand it and employers and so on Mm. but i think um i mean there was there was you know there was a there was an issue it was very clear that there was going to be an issue very early on because the government kind of announced this wonderful scheme where they were going to pay 80% of people's usual pay, but they weren't really clear about what they kind of meant by usual pay. Um, And, Mm. you know, the issues with umbrella company workers, as we've just spoken about, is that contractually their usual pay is kind of the national minimum wage bit for the the hourly, you know, per hour. And everything else on top of that is kind of at the discretion of the umbrella company strictly, even though we've we've said that that you know in practice it's it gets rare. paid anyway. Yeah. Um, mm. But yeah, I mean, it wasn't really clear whether they meant eighty percent of you know contractual pay or whether they meant kind of eighty percent of you pay that's usually paid. Average. You mm. know, and I think it left yeah. it left everybody kind of uh, you know flailing around. And in a bit of a state of flux. And, and actually, I have some sympathy with umbrella companies because if, you know, if they'd have paid out 80% of national minimum wage, but actually what the government had intended was that umbrella companies paid out 80% of the full wage, then the umbrella company would have been in trouble. If the umbrella company yeah. had have paid out 80% of the full wage, but later it transpired that the government meant that they should only have paid out 80% of the national minimum wage, the umbrella company would have been in trouble. So either way, mm. it would have been in trouble if it if it had done the wrong thing, really. So yeah. I think what a lot yeah. of umbrella companies did was kind of just sit tight and stay put and hope that the government would issue some kind of clarification around what was meant by this usual pay kind yeah. of concept. Yeah. And you know, it did it did kind of come out in the end and everything kind of seemed seems to have resolved itself. But I I do think it kind of shone a bit of a light on the fact that, you know, within government there are kind of there are pockets of, of expertise around umbrella companies and so on. But I'm, I'm not really sure that anybody kind of really understands how they work and how the temporary labour mm. market work. And it did seem a little bit like agency workers and umbrella company workers were a bit of a kind of afterthought um, in terms of yes. the job retention yeah. scheme being, being rolled out. And I do think 
you know, perhaps one of the lessons to be learned kind of going forward is, you know, in order to stop this happening again, in order to stop all these agency workers and umbrella company workers really not understanding whether or not they were going to be furloughed and, you know, mm. umbrella company employers not really understanding how they could furlough workers even if they, they wanted to. Yeah. What, what really needs to be put in place is someone in government that has kind of overall responsibility for umbrella companies and whose job it is to understand how umbrella companies fit into the labour market and how the, and what the intricacies are that exist with umbrella companies in order to be able to feed in to key decisions that are made around things like the job retention scheme at the right time, you know, to make sure yes. that um, everybody's clear and that everybody has certainty. Yeah, you're quite right. And I think, um, I do think from, from my perspective, um, the whole agency worker and umbrella side of things was was definitely an afterthought. And I, I don't mean to be critical of the government on that because actually they had a very difficult job and I think what they did put in place was absolutely fantastic for the majority of the workforce. However, you've got probably in the UK about 20 plus percent of the UK's workforce who work in a non-permanent way. So not all agency workers, that includes self-employed people as well. Um, so so yeah, you, it's a large proportion of the workforce that doesn't work on a standard permanent employed basis and so when you look at it that way it is actually very annoying that, that, that such a large proportion was sort of forgotten um uh, but that said um my recollection is that there was an awful lot of work going on by the numerous different bodies involved um within recruitment and umbrella to try and get that clarity and it it did come in the end just about in time so so um yeah it, it was it was um not good for the workers though just that not knowing and of course it was such a worrying time in in general we've kind of got used to the fact of having a pandemic i think a bit now whereas last year i i remember feeling very worried about about it anyway Let's um let's move on because I am convinced that this year will be very much better and that we 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 will make it to the other side of the pandemic. So so um yeah, it's useful though to to consider how um how how it was a second thought really to to the government um and that that brings me straight back to your point that there is no one within government that really has has an overview of of where umbrella and agency workers kind of sit because there's all the tax side of things so you would think perhaps hmrc then that's kind of employment law side of things so you'd think perhaps department of business you'd even think department of work and pensions so i mean you know you can see that there's different government departments um that perhaps need someone to have a profile to join it all together um and hopefully that that may happen um one of the things you looked at, I know within the report, is a potential looking at whether government should regulate umbrella. Now, what 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 was kind of what did you manage to find on on that front? Um, and you know, it it may be uh, regulation isn't quite the same as having someone with that overview, but actually, you could see how the two could perhaps knit together. Goodness me! So you know, for as long as I could have been delving around in umbrella companies, the question of kind of regulation, I think, has been you know has been there um <laughs> yeah and i think it's clear that some uh, intervention is needed and um mm. you know not just from employment uh, employment law perspective but also from a tax perspective because many of the issues with umbrella companies that that there are 
kind of cut across both. Um, yeah. And, you know, HMRC, well, you know, if, 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 if departments kind of within themselves are kind of grappling with the umbrella concept and aren't really sure how to deal with it and kind of keep pushing it to one side in the hope that it will kind of go away, which is sometimes what I think is what I think they all feel. If, you know, if, if that's happening yeah. kind of on, on an individual departmental basis, it's hard to see how we're ever going to be able to get into a situation where you have cross departmental working, which is, you know, what's needed really in order to be able to kind of um, improve the umbrella industry. Um, yes. Yeah, it's it's um, it's yeah. it's not just about um, the, the single enforcement body kind of being brought into place and, and having umbrellas given to it. It's about the single enforcement body working with HMRC. It's then about HMRC kind of, you know, working back with the single enforcement body. They all, everybody needs to kind of work with the Gangmasters Licensing Association. The pensions regulator mm. probably need to be kind of inputting it. But yeah. the DWP, as you yeah. say, needs to be involved because of all the, you know, people that do agency work that potentially on benefits and are kind of shoehorned mm. into this type of work in the first place. There are so there are so many kind of considerations, and in order to what you need is someone to kind of coordinate. It, I think at the top. Yes, and I think um, I think Matthew Taylor's report, the Good Work Plan, which might have come out in two thousand and seventeen. Don't quote me on the year in case I'm wrong. <laughs> but um, he he did sort of recommend that umbrellas should be regulated, but we haven't seen a huge amount of movement there. Um, I think. I think you're right in mentioning the single enforcement body, um, which um, the I think the government is now committed to having a single enforcement body. Um, and I think we're waiting for them to come back on the consultation in relation to that. Am I am I right on that? Yeah, that's right. We're still we're still waiting for the um, consultation to be responded to. I mean, I suppose in a way it's not unsurprising that it's not it's not been kind of up at the top of the agenda given covid mm. and, and given brexit and so yeah. on but uh, you know it does it does seem to me that the, the umbrella issue has been kind of kicked down the road you know for some mm. years now and um you know first of all there was you know is, is it going to be the eas the employment agency standards inspectorate that are going to regulate umbrellas and then that seemed to kind of kind of morph into well is it going to be the seb that regulate umbrellas and now the whole thing seems to have been parked while we deal with the fallout of covid and brexit and so on but yeah. at some point somebody needs to take umbrellas out of the kind of long grass and grasp it yeah. and deal with it really um yeah and I, yeah. I hope you know if one of the if one of the things that comes out of this report is that we're just able to um help you know kind of encourage that process along a little bit then i think i'd, I'd feel very proud and, and happy that that was one of the outcomes yeah. really I, th- I think it will um i think um the umbrella companies within the sector that are doing things properly will absolutely want regulation to come in um, to deal with the um, types of firms that are doing things less properly. And I think from the trade unions um, side of things, because obviously this report was commissioned by the TUC, I think they would probably welcome regulation as well, because of course, they they hear firsthand from workers that do have those bad experiences. So I think there's a lot of willingness. We just kind of are almost waiting for the for the government to 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 do something and and you know perhaps once we're beyond the pandemic and once brexit settles down hopefully this sort of thing will will um uh come towards the top of their yeah. list with with a bit Definitely. of luck um so we sort of 
touched on it a little bit talking about regulation. I kind of brought that up in in the wrong order, actually, because what we should have spoken about first was the problems, if you like, the the issues with with umbrella and the, the kind of less good practices. And I know that that um, that you've got a chapter on this in in your report. So what what sort of things um, have you seen? I mean, I guess the things I hear about most often are disguised remuneration schemes. Um, what? Uh, so let's let's start with those just for just for somewhere to start. What what is one? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, disguise remuneration. Um, it's uh, it's it's a uh, yeah, it's 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 um it's something that's taken up a lot of Litrig's time really over the last few years. Um, okay. And I mean, disguise remuneration is is simply where um, an employer, uh, a, a, you know, an umbrella company or, or whoever, uh, pays mm. their worker in some kind of random non-taxable element rather than kind of traditional wages or salary. Yeah. Um, and it could be like it could be a loan or it could be some kind of um, investment payment. I think we've heard it could be an advance. Mm. It could be an, an, a, a, an annuity. I mean, there's all sorts of things that these um, non-taxable, these purportedly non-taxable elements are called. But um, yeah. ultimately, all of the schemes seem to revolve around the same concept of paying workers in um a non-taxable amount as as well as a small kind of minimum wage salary. Yeah. And so basically then um the providers of this way to way of operating, um uh presumably the person earning money through these things are receiving more income than they would have if they were paid um a hundred percent through through payroll, I guess. Well it's interesting because um yes, I mean I, I I think in some schemes, yes, you're right. I think that people will mm-hmm. have entered into them knowingly, they will have kind of weighed up the pros and the cons and they would have made a kind of, you know, a judgment that this is what they wanted to do because they wanted to kind of try and get some kind of advantage by having, yeah. you know, organizing their affairs in this way. I think the interesting thing that's come through to us over the last few years, certainly in de- terms of dealing with agency workers and the loan charge is that actually mm. there seems to be a fairly significant problem out there with agency workers having been put into disguised remuneration schemes kind of behind their backs, as far as we can make oh. out, with absolutely okay. no real understanding or even knowledge that actually they're being paid in this way. Now, wow. if you kind of think about it through that lens, th- there must be something in it for the, for the disguised remuneration provider as well yes. you know they, they must be making yeah. money um yeah somehow through that through that scheme so I don't think it's always a simple case of kind of taxpayers having a personal avoidance motive I know that that's a nice simple way of thinking about disguise remuneration I know that's the way that yeah. HMRC like to think about disguise remuneration because it makes it an easier problem <laughs> yeah. in a way to deal with but actually I think there's a bigger issue which is that there's a huge you know there's a huge opportunity for um basically fraudulent kind of entities or whatever to set themselves up as umbrella companies and insert themselves into supply chains where of course there are huge Mm. amounts of money flowing through um at at all times 
and basically skimming off the top of those huge amounts of money by by setting up these disguised remuneration schemes. Yeah, and it's it is fraud. And I, I've done um, a bit of work with the Loan Charge Action Group, and um, I have to say before. Before I was looking at it properly, I probably did have a bit of that concept in that, oh, well, um, it's people who've deliberately sought to to pay less tax than, than other people. But actually, my eyes have been completely opened, as, as you describe. Um, and, you know, it's 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 kind of all too easy to be hoodwinked, um, if you like, into these into these schemes. And I think, you know, if. If through the lens of a worker who just wants to, I don't know, work for the NHS um, uh, and and do kind of their medical practice, whatever that might be, um, they probably just want to get paid at the end of the day. And probably we we said at the very start, how many of us scrutinise our own paperwork? Um, you know, uh, you you kind of try to, um, but but you know, if if you're working through through a recruitment agency, you just want to get paid. You're just doing shifts or or whatever. So I do have some some sympathy with people who who I think genuinely didn't know what they were what they were getting into um anyway but um, it, it doesn't matter what I think I, I think it does I mean I think it does I think it's worth drawing out the point because you know there is there is this I mean it does seem to me that there's this real reluctance within government to see disguised remuneration in, in that way and it, but it's an important mm. point and it's important because you know, agency workers who get sent off to an umbrella company or who you know find an umbrella company or whatever you know their whole lives they will have been paying taxes under PAYE Mm. that PAYE makes people very passive you kind of just assume your employer is taking care of everything for you you're not really on top of your taxes like you might be in the states where everyone has to fill out a tax return and knows everything about their tax at all moments of the tax year you know as long as you get your net pay at the end of the week and as long as your net pay looks roughly (laughs) you know in line with what you're expecting you're probably not going to do that much kind of no, digging that's true. um mm. and, and that of course leaves a huge wide open space for you know these entities to kind yeah. of play in because i mean let's just use an example say you've got um a worker that's on 500 you know that where the, where the rate that's been agreed is 500 mm. pounds so you know the agency pays this entity that set itself up as an umbrella company 500 pounds now, under normal conditions, that that umbrella company would pay four hundred of that yeah. money, four hundred pounds of that money to mm. the worker, and then they would pay, say, seventy pounds on top yeah. to, you know, in terms of employers nick or whatever, and that would leave them then with thirty pounds as their margin. That's the amount mm-hmm. that they've made in, in terms of that transaction. Now, if you're an umbrella company and you're running a disguised remuneration yeah. scheme, when you get that five hundred pounds you can probably deliver, you can probably work the figures so that you're able to deliver the same amount of net pay to Mm. the worker as before, but out of a less gross amount, out of a lesser amount than the £400. And then by doing that, you're also going to be able to cut your employment costs in half, if not not more so. So instead of the £30, actually what you're keeping is double that, triple that, quadruple Mm. the amount, really. And so, you know... Once you kind of start start looking at disguised remuneration as a way for other entities in the supply chain to make money and it not just being about a kind of personal avoidance motive on mm. the worker, you know, you, it, you, you can start to see why perhaps the way, you know, all the way that the, the ways that the government have come up with tackling disguised remuneration, 
you can you can perhaps start to see what why it's yeah. not working really because they're not looking at it as as the right problem they're not looking at it through the correct lens yeah and i have heard um case um whereby someone was taking home what they thought was broadly the right amount of money so they had literally no idea that any of this um stuff was going on behind the scenes until they got a big tax bill um from from hmrc so it is it is pretty shocking um uh, some of this um stuff what um other kind of issues are there with with umbrellas so i I've, i think hmrc recently ish um issued something on mini umbrella i think within the last six months or so what what is mini umbrella and why do we need to worry about it mini umbrella <laughs> so i mean mini umbrellas are fascinating to me just purely for the fact that it's just so brazen <laughs> i mean you know what, what they do is they basically um uh, split split up a kind of entire umbrella workforce into these kind of mini umbrella mm. companies um with with the with the kind of intention of them being able to claim the employment okay. allowance um yeah. you know within within each company which of course is a, a four thousand pound deduction off of an employer nick yeah. bill so you know if, if you're an umbrella company and you're only allowed you know you're allowed one employment allowance well that's not going to last very long at all if you've got thousands mm. of workers on your books and before you know it you're going to be playing paying employee nick like everybody else but if you're a mini umbrella company and you can continually set up these kind of tiny tiny micro entities and and claim the employment allowance again and again and again and yeah. again and again well you're, you're never going to be paying employee yeah. nick and um you know you're going to be kind of really maximizing your 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 your, yeah. your money basically the interesting thing about mini umbrellas is that there's actually very specific targeted anti-avoidance legislation oh. in place that should stop mini umbrella mini okay. umbrella companies. <laughs> they say that the employment allowance isn't claimable where people have kind of purposefully fragmented right. an existing company into smaller yeah. chunks, you know. Um and I, I think it was kind of back in 2015 when we were first alerted to the existence of mini umbrella companies. And our then technical director, a guy called Robin Williamson, was asked to comment on on the BBC about mini umbrella companies. And, you know, he, he mentioned this targeted anti-avoidance legislation and said, you know, that it shouldn't really, it should yeah, stop shouldn't have mini umbrella companies mm. in their tracks. But, but for some reason, we're 2021 and we're still wow. talking about it. I, I don't really, I don't really know what the issue is i suppose hmrc are having a hard time kind of getting a handle on it because of the fact that the directors of these mini umbrellas seem to be based offshore oh, okay. quite a lot yeah. of the time yeah. and durham outside of hmrc's out of its uh, outside of hmrc's yeah. net but yeah that it's it's fascinating how um you know there's how, how they're still in existence basically yeah it is and in terms of kind of the risks to workers um are are there any risks to the workers if they're being paid at the end of the day through payroll and it's not a disguised remuneration scheme as well um i what what would be the risk to workers well, i think that's a really good question i think um actually you know th there are risks to workers and i'll cover those in a second but but actually you know th the main risk here is to mm. the exchequer i mean you know that companies claiming £4,000 employer nick relief, you know, multiple, yeah. multiple, 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 multiple times must be costing just a mm. huge amount of money. Um, so there's definitely an issue in terms of the tax yeah. loss. But I do think, I mean, there's probably a kind of slightly more subtle issue when it comes to workers. As you say, actually, 
by and large, they're having their PAYE dealt mm. with properly. And you might wonder, well, where's the harm to the worker if these kind of mini umbrellas mm. are doing all this, uh, you know, business with the employment allowance? Well, I think, you know, the minute the £4,000 employment allowance is, is used up in respect of any kind of small micro company, the directors then just create yeah. another one and, and put, put the workers into another one. And it means that we can, you often see workers who every couple of weeks have a different employer PAYE right. reference okay. yes. because there's been a different yeah. company set up to claim the employment yeah. allowance again that have then set up another PAYE reference because you need the, the specific PAYE reference to claim the employment right. allowance. And I suppose it just means that, uh, you know, employees might from one week to the next not really know who their employer mm. is. They've got all these differing payroll references. It might cause a problem if they're asked to kind of present their pay and tax information for, you know, to put together their employment mm. history or if they're claiming benefits or if they need to kind of try and explain yes. what they've been doing for the last few years in terms of getting a mortgage it's not going to look great if they've got all these kind of yeah. different pay slips with different employers on it so I think there's this kind of subtle issue there for workers but um yeah the, the main the main issue is clearly that the, the amount of money that the exchequer is losing yeah and I guess from a worker perspective if they if they are not sure if they are in one of these mini umbrella schemes I guess they would know by checking their payroll reference number on their pay slips every every time um which is a bit tedious to be honest with you isn't it but um but yeah if, if you've got your suspicions it's it's an easy enough check to to do um okay and then um what's the elective deduction model because i know you cover that within the report as well it's this it's this really kind of tricky model that we 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 heard about as a kind of as a kind of consequence of the changes that came out in in 2014 um and under this under this kind of model agency workers are treated as um employees for tax purposes because that's what the 2014 legislation says Mm. must happen um and they're treated as self-employed for kind of employment law purposes so there's a kind of artificial division created between their employment law status and their tax law status now actually you can get different statuses across employment law and tax law even where you are applying the tests kind Mm. of correctly Mm. and properly but it would but it would be quite rare so it's I you know it's um it does raise it does raise suspicions that you know these workers are being treated as employees for tax purposes but yet they're uh, they're being treated as self-employed for employment mm. law purposes um, and of, of course you know that the 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 incentive the objective there is that by being self-employed by being treated as self-employed they're not they're not entitled to the kind of employment. Yes law rights that they might otherwise be entitled to so they're being denied those rights which of course saves their engagers money yeah but um it's it's not going to be benefiting the worker in in any way at all really and i'm quite surprised that there doesn't seem to have been any movement from any of the enforcement bodies really yeah they should um, have been yeah around the elective yeah and um so i guess um because they're self-employed um then they don't have access to the minimum wage and you know think things kind of that that you know is as basic as that and then also paid holiday they wouldn't have which then we've talked about how paid holiday works in in this sector which is generally 12.07 percent so of course 
whoever they're working for doesn't have to pay them holiday, etc. So, so I can see how this type of model might flourish um, in in low paid industries or where where there aren't the margins and maybe everyone is undercutting everyone else. I, I don't know. Um, but yeah, it's it's a difficult one because I guess HMRC's perspective, they're getting their tax um, and national insurance and employment status wise, I guess if these workers are not trying to bring about a case, which they, which I guess they aren't, then I, I don't, I don't know. I don't, but that doesn't, <laughs> see, if you and I are struggling with working it out, working out who should take action, that, that mm-hmm. this, this kind of does bring us back to a regulation um, type of um, option that, that, that I feel needs to be a priority actually. Well, that's that's right. I mean, I think half the reason that this model has been so successful for such a long time is that, you know, even if a worker does kind of work out or something's not right here, I'm see- I seem to be paying all this tax as if I'm an employee, but I don't seem to be getting any rights that go with mm. that status. Who do they who yeah. do they complain to? I mean, you know, employment law enforcement is kind of fragmented over different mm. groups. And in the case of holiday pay, there's not really anybody enforcing no. it at all. So... You know, the fact that it's not clear for workers or, you know, where they should go with a complaint mm. if they think they're in one of these models must surely be fueling yeah. the, the, the the use of the model yeah. in the sector, really. So yeah. and- something, some kind of single enforcement body that, you know, so, that had overarching responsibility and that at least gave workers a starting point to be able to go and um, find out about their rights and, yeah. you know potentially make a complaint i think it really it really would be um and and um well i was gonna say something but it's gone (laughs) um oh yes and, and and i guess also if workers in these models were wanting to raise an issue at the moment i guess they could mention it to their agency or their client but then they might then lose lose the very work that they need so it is it is a difficult situ- situation for them isn't it um moving on to another um well actually i'm not sure whether it is a problem or not um uh, another issue if you like or or a newer a newer way of working um with umbrellas is this one of joint employment so what what were your findings? Well, what is it and what were your findings around that? Probably I should start by saying that actually, we, because, you know, there was so much to cover. The report is was, I mean, it started out at 20,000 words. That was what our intention was. And I think now it's, you know, more than double mm. that, if not kind of triple that. And it was already very, very long. I think we, we um, once we came across joint employment and, of, and, and the other module that seems to be kind of... Um, about at the moment as a new a new way of working which is the professional employment yes, organization yeah. model i think by the time we kind of uncovered those and started to think about them we thought that actually there was so much that we needed to think about it, it we couldn't fit it into yeah. this report and actually what we needed to do was probably you know dedicate an entirely new report <laughs> to yeah. the two concepts um now before kind of finish i know that there is a section on the construction industry um within your report um and um i guess the uh, you know my understanding of the construction industry um is that they have the construction industry scheme which is um a way of paying self-employed construction workers through um a type of payroll that essentially 
um, takes a bit out for, for tax and is paid over to the government um, there and then at source. And then at the end of the year, that self-employed construction worker kind of um, uh, needs to do a, do a return and they may get some money back if they've overpaid or they may, if they've underpaid, need to pay HMRC. It's is that a very simplified understanding of the construction industry scheme and and where does umbrellas fit in alongside that yeah you're absolutely right i mean cis is kind of um well it's 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 very odd in that it's a withholding mm. tax for self-employed people i mean mostly when you think of self-employed people you think of people that are paid gross and then they trot off at the end of the tax yeah. year and do their tax return and they do with their taxes and pay themselves and that's part of being self-employed is that you have that kind mm. of autonomy. Um, this, the CIS system was developed kind of in the 1970s to try and deal with the fact that people weren't trotting off at the end of the tax year and doing their tax returns <laughs> and that there were some people that were just, you know, um, being non-compliant, yeah. basically. So, I mean, you know, CIS works yeah. in, in many respects and actually it does help CIS workers kind of pay their taxes and, and be mm. compliant. But it does... In our experience, it does seem to help engagers kind of disguise when people are being treated as self-employed right. and actually they should be being treated as, as employed. Okay. Um, because often, you know, you'll get you'll get construction workers that are that, that feel that they're in an employment relationship because they're being told what to do and they're being told what time to start work and they're being, t- being told, you know, um, what mm. their pay rate is without kind of kind of any negotiation. They, they feel yeah. very employed and, um, you know, they, they, have this, they, they have this kind of very kind of paternalistic system which looks after them by kind of deducting their taxes mm. for them and then giving them a pay slip at the end of the month which sets out how much they've earned and how much tax mm. has been deducted. And then, you know, it's, it's not surprising that they kind of think that they're in yeah. employment um, and often, you know, things they only realise they're not actually being treated as employed by their engagers. They're only being treated, they're being treated as self-employed when something goes yeah. wrong. So for example, if they, if they get sick right. or, um, yeah. Yeah. you know, they want to take some holiday and they, they kind of approach their engager who they think is their employer and say, you know, can I get a statutory sick pay please? And then the employer says, no, no, you're not employed, you're self-employed. And there's, there've also been some issues that we've seen recently around the SAIS scheme. So the self uh, employed yes. income support yeah. scheme for the coronavirus job retention scheme and we've seen a number of inf- unfortunate cases where cis workers have been so kind of convinced that they're in employment mm. that actually they've taken their cis statements and um summarized them and put them on the employment pages of their tax return and not the self-employment pages oh, of their tax okay. return mm. and hmrc have then said that their tax returns because they don't include the self-employment pages, can't um, can't yeah. justify a, a self-employment scheme. It makes them in a, the ineligible for for that support. Oh wow! And um, it's it's just it's just very it, you know it's it's a it's really it's a really difficult situation yeah. um, for workers. I think, and I think the the construction industry is, um, you know, there's because people move around very yeah. you know from project to project and, yeah you know, yeah that's right it's kind of characterized by lots of short-term kind mm. of working and so on I think it's easy for people to to kind of be very confused about what their employment status is yeah. because their engager can say to them well you're only you're only here for three weeks so of course you're not mm. employed you're so, you know of course you're self-employed or 
you know, well, you've brought your own hammer and tools today to the site. So because you're, you know, using your own tools, that means mm. that you're self-employed rather than mm. employed. It just, it's just very, it's lots of grey area and it's just not at all easy, I don't think, for, um, for, for workers to really understand what their employment status is in the construction industry. Yeah, um, I think there are probably moves within the construction industry to to bring about that clarity. I, it, we've seen various headlines over the years about um, self-employed people within construction. Um, and again, like everything, if you are self-employed within construction, that's fine if you know you are. <laughs> but, but the issue is that you just outlined is where there's that confusion and that murkiness. Um, and that's when there's potential risk of exploitation because you don't know, don't know your rights. Um, so, so yeah, that, that's a difficult one. And I think, um, I, I guess it, it's, it's covered in your report partly because, um, the TUC will will be active within construction, but also a lot of umbrella companies do operate the CIS scheme as well, don't they? As as um, alongside their umbrella. That's right. And actually, we felt it was quite important to do a deep dive into the construction mm. industry scheme because um, it, the construction industry seems to be one of the areas that have um, that has really kind of um, where there have been really specific problems for workers, yeah. um, particularly as far as the unions have, have been okay. concerned. So. They've been very vocal. A number of unions have been very vocal around the use of umbrella companies in the construction industry yeah. scheme and how umbrella companies seem to have lubricated this process where, you know, workers one day were PAYE employees on the constructor payroll. And then all of a sudden overnight, they seem to have found themselves being switched into CIS self-employment, right. you know, via an umbrella mm. company. And it, it's caused all sorts of problems. And, you know, I, I do. I, I remember watching, I think it was like the one show or something several years ago. And, and you know, there was the report, um, was it UCAT or Unite, yeah. uh, uh, you know, kind of telling the stories of, of the, the workers that have been um, impacted by the situation. And actually, it sounded very scary and it sounded very mm. horrible. And it sounded like it was really important that something that, that something yes. was done about yeah. it. Yeah. Um, I think the. I think that something has was done about it because in 2014 you got the you know there were new rules mm. that uh, were brought out which meant that it wasn't so easy for agencies um, and other employment intermediaries to kind of ignore PAYE and just deal with people people by via CIS and hopefully I mean it does seem to us from the you know from what we kind of uncovered in our well actually we didn't really uncover anything which I think speaks volumes mm. of itself but the 2014 changes where you know which made it harder for umbrellas and agencies to kind of switch people into the cis system they do seem to have worked and it does seem to have kind of helped regularize that whole part of the yeah, sector yeah. so i think that's really positive that there do that there do seem to have been good. some changes good no that that is positive because um that is where you kind of hear of a lot of um false self-employment um and you know i know false self-employment does go on within other sectors but it is it does often seem to crop up with within construction so so it's positive um, that, that there has been hopefully some some good moves in in recent years. I, I do remember when that legislation came out, and it was it was a uh, problematic um, because because suddenly um, suddenly uh, more needed to be done to make sure that those workers were genuinely self employed, and that that was that was that was good, um, a, a kind of good move. Um, so we've covered absolutely masses today, <laughs> and 
I'm enormously grateful that you that you gave us so much of your time. Um, it's an impossible question to finish with, but if you could kind of conclude with what what you think might need need to be a priority for further work or research or intervention i mean I, I, there's there's a number of common themes i i think but um but w- what are your thoughts that's uh, you know an excellent question it's a massive and, question and, um, yeah as, as a tax person i suppose i was kind of half expecting the report to be kind of about tax and about travel expenses and about all the stuff that used yes. to go on with kind of reimbursed travel expenses and so on and because for a good while there it really looked like you know bad practices were kind of driving out good when it came to travel expenses Mm. um and you know we we kept seeing workers kind of taking up work on increasingly degraded terms i mean in in one of the first report in the first report we did on umbrella companies we had this example where we'd got a payslip from a nurse and it was her weekly payslip and it, it showed that she had um been paid 200 pounds and she had had 600 pounds of reimbursed travel expenses that week I mean you know it was it was kind of nonsense really and part of me was wondering how much of that we might still see and and whether or not that Mm. was going to kind of form a big kind of path and trajectory that needed to be dealt with but actually you know the 2016 changes on travel and subsistence really seem to have to have helped um that's not to say there isn't some you know there aren't some, perhaps some issues with um, how certain umbrellas are kind of dealing with the travel expenses situation. But it, it, mm. does, it does strike me that it's probably kind of well-meaning, but just slightly kind of misinformed, um, you know, right. yeah. anything yeah. that's going on with, with travel expenses. I don't think there's anything particularly egregious going on, let, let me say that. I think that the okay. main... Okay, Good. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is really, it is really possible. Uh, positive I think what I will say is that it even though there does seem to have been this kind of sea change within the umbrella industry on travel expenses it probably will take a while for people's perceptions to change <laughs> yes, there's so much yeah. random mm. stuff going on with you know 200 pounds pay and 600 pounds travel expenses you know it, it's not it's not yeah. surprising the umbrella industry perhaps got the reputation that it did but I think it's you know yes. it, it's clear to us that that reputation isn't altogether deserved anymore um and there are po- there are really okay. pockets of excellent kind of um practice actually um mm, mm. you know if if i was to kind of pick pick an area that where i think that kind of urgent work is needed it would have to be around the disguised remuneration stuff but i'm i'm hesitant yeah. to kind of put, lump that together with the travel expenses stuff because i think actually what you're talking about are two are two different things i mean tra- you know, you've got this kind of seg- you've got the marketplace, you've got the umbrella marketplace where you have proper traditional umbrellas who pretty much seem to be doing things roughly right. Let's put it that way. And yeah. who might kind of go off the path slightly with some odd bits and bobs. And then on the other hand, you have this completely kind of separate marketplace where, where the only connection is that they're calling themselves umbrellas. And, you know, there's nothing about the people that do the disguise remuneration stuff, as far as we can see, that's actually connected to really, you know, traditional umbrella type employment. It's a yeah. completely different yeah. thing. And I think that it's really important that people kind of understand and see it as, as a different thing to, um, to yeah. kind of traditional umbrella company issues. So, 
HMRC yeah. really need to get a hold on the disguise remuneration stuff. Um, and I think one of the best, yeah. you know, one of the best things they can do as a starting point is to try and change their mindset from seeing this disguise remuneration stuff about something that's entered into by workers as a choice to something that mm. is put in place by fraudulent entities setting themselves up in supply chains in order to make money. They're two completely separate issues. And unless HMRC yes. can deal with the issue in hand, which is that the second issue, their, their, their actions and their kind of initiatives are going to fail. They're going to land flat. You know, if, if you're a worker mm. and you haven't made a choice to go into a disguise remuneration scheme, you've been put into one behind your back and you don't even know that you're in it, seeing HMRC spotlights saying, don't enter disguise, you know, don't do this, don't do that, it's really bad for you and you'll get into trouble, it's going to completely pass you by because you don't even know that you're in the scheme in the first place. Yeah, that's that's so true. That That is absolutely reflective of a couple of conversations I've had with people that are affected by it. And just alongside that, one of the things I think does need to change is that if we are all responsible for our own tax, we need to know that much more clearly because people don't. And they, they're given advice by people that they assume to be qualified, regulated, you know, whatever. And, and they, they may well not be. Um, and they, you know, they, they don't realise it's actually their responsibility. And you, you said it earlier, um, most people in employment are paid through payroll and it's very passive. Um, and actually, if we are to be responsible for, for our tax um, wholly as individuals, then we need to be a bit more active or, or that message needs to get across somehow because I think that I think that is a, a flaw. But I've sort of gone off on one of my hobby horses there. So, <laughs> so no, <but> I mean, <laughs> apologies for that. You raise a really important point though. And actually that's, you know, the fact that HMRC keep telling all these agency workers that find themselves in disguised remuneration that they're responsible for their own tax position and, you know, they really need to take a lot of care to make sure their taxes are correct. Actually, mm. that overlooks a very important fundamental point. And that's that, mm. yes, that is the case that you are responsible for your taxes, but not where there's an employer in the picture. Where there's an employer in the picture, the rules say that yeah. they have primary liability making sure that your income tax and national insurance is dealt with via PAYE and what right, underlies yeah. these disguised remuneration schemes is a PAYE failing on behalf of that employer now all the while mm. the HMRC are directing their attention and their energy at the taxpayers and telling the taxpayers that they need to you know change their behavior and consider their behavior and so on they're basically letting these employing entities that aren't operating PAYE correctly off the hook you know they're sending out completely yeah. the wrong message that, that they can just yes. do what they want and it's going to be the worker that they're going to chase. And, you know, that has yeah. to change in order for HMRC to get a handle on this disguised remuneration. So. Yeah, completely agree. Um, so, yeah, um, maybe that can be achieved through some sort of regulation. My other favourite hobby horse <laughs> to, to, to end on. <laughs> um Super, thank you so, so much for your time this morning. I really, really appreciate it. And um, we will include a link to the report um, in the notes that go, go with the episode. Um, so, so, yeah, massive thank you. Thank you for listening to Empowering Agency Workers, hosted by Julia Kermode. For more information on today's discussion, please visit iwork.co.uk.
www.ghostbusters.co.uk, where you can also join our growing community. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and if you did, then we would love you to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. We'll be back at the same time next week.